The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 338. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan. And subscribe to my YouTube page at Brian McClanahan, where you can watch this podcast. You can find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, McClanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to McClanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll at McClanahan Academy. You get a free course when you do so, and you get the best deals on forthcoming courses. Of course, if you're on my email list, you get coupons as well. But if you're a McClanahan Academy subscriber, you get better coupons. So you're going to want to be a McClanahan Academy subscriber if you want to get those courses, and they're awesome. I've got 13 classes, a new class out just in the last week, Southern Cultural and Intellectual History, Part 1. It's a four-part series. Part 1's out. Part 2 is forthcoming very soon. So you're going to want to be a McClanahan Academy subscriber to get the deal on that course. It's a great way to support the, the show, this free podcast. But you get a good course or 10 or 12 or 13 courses if you want to buy them all on the back end too. You can also support the show by clicking on that support tab. At BrianMcClanahan.com, you can throw a few pennies my way, help keep these lights on, help keep the podcast going. You can get your Brian McClanahan book plates there. If you want my autograph on one of my books, just order a book plate. Also, you can purchase one of my books. I've got a new book out too, Southern Scribblings. It's a collection of 60 essays in defense of the Southern tradition. You're going to want that too. You can also get your Brian McClanahan Show gear. Just click on that Shop tab to take you out there to my web store. You get all the Brian McClanahan Show logo and all kinds of cool stuff. It's fun. So those are all great ways to support the show financially. You can also support it by leaving a review wherever you get your podcast, by sharing this podcast on show, social media. Send me your show suggestions. Uh, leave a comment. I'd like to interact um, with you or at least read what you have to say about it. I, do, I read everything, so uh, if it's good or bad. But, um, and I do, uh, I do listen to what you want. So if you want a show or there's something you want me to talk about, please send me an idea. All right. All that said, let's talk about the topic of the day. And this is something that I saw. It was a headline from Yahoo News. And it's going to get into a, a couple of pieces I wrote five and six years ago that aren't in Southern Scribblings. But uh, a couple of things I wrote five or six years ago about what I call Yankee self-righteous delusional disorder. And this is, a, this is a common problem throughout U.S. In fact, it's a, it's a constant strain of thought throughout U.S. history. It's Yankees. And the title of this particular piece at Yahoo News was Portland, America's Whitest Big City is an Unlikely Hub of Black Lives Matter. And in this article, uh, it says, Often called the whitest U.S. big city, more than 70% of the population is non-Latino white, Portland is transformed into a national center for a movement that might seem more at home in Chicago, New York, Los Angeles, or another more diverse locale. Black Lives Matter has become a ubiquitous rallying cry in a city where only about 6% of the population is black, while almost 10% is Latino and 8% is Asian ancestry. Well, this seems like it's uh, 
this would be odd to the people at, at Yahoo News, but you see, they don't understand this is Yankees. This is actually from the LA Times, but posted on Yahoo News. They don't understand that the, that the key demographic here is not race, it's culture, it's Yankeeism. And you see, you find this not just in Portland, but you find it all over the place, right? And, and you go back into the 19th century and you find that what all these people have in common is a type of virtue signaling. A friend of mine wrote an email uh, today about this and about how people virtue signal, um, and it, everyone's heard this before. I mean, if you're listening to the show, I'm sure you know what virtue signaling is, but it's not about the people that you're supposedly trying to help. It's all about you. You want to go out and say, I support these things, and if you don't, you're less than a person. I'm better than you. You see, it's all about the internalization of what makes them better than you. It's not about real shame or guilt or any of that. It's all about publicly saying you're better than other people. It's why people drive Priuses. A Prius is, I mean, who would drive that car if it wasn't about virtue signaling? The car looks terrible. It has no, it has no pickup. It's an awful car. It, it's, it's, it's really, a, truly an ugly garbage vehicle. But people drive a Prius because they're virtue signaling to everyone else in the SUVs or the big pickup trucks or whatever it is, I'm better than you because I am driving this car. Now, if you drive a Tesla, I mean, okay, you get the electric vehicle part of it, which you're supposedly saving the environment, but it's also a cool-looking car, right? So, I mean, Teslas are nice cars. So, in that way, you know, it's still about the car. But the Prius, I mean, it's, it's one of the ugliest things you could, you could ever see, a Prius. It's kind of like the, uh, the, the uh, Pontiac Aztec. I mean, it reminds me of that vehicle so much. If, if, if you don't know, the Pontiac Aztec is one of the ugliest things that's ever been produced in the history, the modern history of automobiles. This thing was terrible looking. And the Prius reminds me of that. I mean, I look at it, it's like, hey, there's a Toyota Aztec, right? I mean, this is what it looks like. Uh, so... You know, here we are with this headline, but I want to go back to these pieces I wrote a couple of years, well, actually I say a couple of years ago. These are now five and six years old. One is entitled, Please Dump Dixie, and the other is the antidote for self-righteous delusional, Yankee self-righteous delusional disorder. Now, in the first, I define what this is. This is Please Dump Dixie. I wrote this in December of 2014, and it was based on an article that was printed at that time. Uh, at the Daily Beast, Michael Tomaski wrote an article, It's Time to dump, to dump Dixie. And I said, you know, please do. And he's basically arguing in 2014. Now, this is before Trump's election. And when I go back and I read these things, I think, my gosh. It ha I mean, we've just gotten worse. I, when I wrote these pieces, I was already talking about what's happening now, but it was it's gotten worse. I mean, this is... 2020 is 2014 and 15 on steroids. Tomaski says that at some point the South should have its independence. Of course, the South tried that one time and it was rejected. In fact, what should happen now is not the South should have its independence. It should be the left coast and New England that get their independence. And then you could have a real America again. In fact, he called the South 
one big nuclear waste site of choleric and extremely racialized resentment. Uh, he said the South lacks tolerance, compassion, civic decency, transracial community, and the crucial secular values on which this country was founded. This is what he says the South lacks. You see, this is what these people in Portland think. Th this is not about Portland. The people that are protesting in Portland, it's not about Portland to them. It's about showing up and saying, I'm better than everybody else, particularly in the South. You see, you have a, you have a situation in Minnesota, which may not have been what everybody thought it was. Now, the body cam footage has been released of the George Floyd situation. Uh, there's still, it's still hard to watch, and there's still, still some things happen there that shouldn't have happened there. But regardless, that happened in Minnesota. What does that have to do with the South? What does that have to do with Confederate monuments or uh, anything? I mean, really, about tr the traditional South. Or even, tr what does it have to do about George Washington or Thomas Jefferson? What does that have to do about any of these things? Nothing. It has nothing to do with that. That was an isolated incident that happened, unfortunately, and cost the man his life. But what does Portland have to do with, say, Alabama or Virginia? Nothing. It has nothing to do with it. But see, this is where you get into this Yankee self-righteous self -righteous delusional disorder. Because you see, as I say here, Tomaski suffers from a common syndrome known as Yankee self-righteous delusional disorder. It can be seen in most major metropolitan areas in the North and heard on many nationally syndicated radio and television programs, particularly those that lean left. But it's not just exclusively to the left. You can also find it in northern-dominated tales of their moral and intellectual superiority. See, for example, any major collection of American literature or art. But are the invectives that drip from Tomosky's pen true? After all, one would think that all the with all the hand-wringing over the problematic South, there must be something to the progressive narrative of the region. So, you see, all of this, everything that's wrong in America has to do with the South. It's all about the South. If it's bad... It came from the South. But let's, and I say, so let's start with this first claim that the South lacks tolerance in transracial communities. According to a study by professors John Logan and Brian Stoltz, only eight of the top 25 most racially segregated cities in the United States are in the South. And that includes Miami and St. Louis, two cities that Tomoski considers northern and western. Remove those, and 19 of the most racially segregated cities are found in the North, including Chicago, New, York's, New York City, Philadelphia, Los Angeles, and Detroit. So most of the most racially segregated cities are in the North. And yet you have people in Portland, which is basically a racially segregated city. The article actually gets into that, how racially segregated Portland actually is. You get, it, you get people out there virtue signaling that we're going to tell these, everybody else in the country what to do. It's Yankeeism. It's exactly what the Puritans were doing with the City Upon a Hill sermon, or at least their much more culturally imperialist ideology. You must be like us, or you're not welcome here. And if you're not like us, we're going to make you be like us. Probably as a result of YSRDD, Tomaski conveniently forgets that the nastiest and most violent of all the race riots of the 20th century took place in northern cities. And he probably doesn't know or doesn't care to know that according to the Christian Science Monitor, black Americans are moving back to the South in large numbers for economic and cultural reasons. So much for a South that's hostile, segregated, and a cultural wasteland. And then he says, what about civic decency? 
Uh, to me, that would include good manners, hospitality, and charity. Condé Nast Traveler, Condé Nast Traveler recently released its annual survey of the friendliest cities in America, and four of the five friendliest places in, are in the South, with number one being Charleston, South Carolina. Conversely, all five of the unfriendliest places in the United States were found in the North, with number one, Newark, New Jersey, ranked as the unfriendliest place, not just in the United States, but in the world in 2013. That's a really big honor. I mean, they're number one in something, as I say, the unfriendliest place in the world. Southerners also love to open their wallets for those in need. The South is constantly ranked as the number one charitable region in the United States, with Alabama and Mississippi closely following Utah as the most charitable states in the Union. Of course, Utah, with the high Mormon influence there, uh, that's a religious uh, religious reason that people in Utah are very charitable. I mean, you can't deny that, right? It's, it's religious based, and same thing with the South. So I say, I guess these Southern Bible thumpers hate people so much they want to give them a helping hand. Tomoski does not want a minute, but Christians actively follow their calling to charity. Faith matters. By the way, the least charitable region in the U.S. is New England, closely followed by New York and California. Right? So... I mean, these Southerners are, you know, just uh, horrible people, right? They're not civic, they don't have a civic decency, supposedly. But I bet you Portland <laughs> doesn't have a whole lot of civic decency. You can see it on display every night. They don't have any civic decency. Progressive politicians and heavy-handed government rob their citizens in these states of over 50% of their income. And I say, you know, John Taylor of Caroline had a great quote about this. A nation oppressed by taxes can never be generous, benevolent, or enlightened. And then he, of course, criticizes that the South lacks the crucial secular values on which this country was founded. But, of course, it was Southerners Thomas Jefferson and James Madison who put into motion the idea of the First Amendment and, of course, religious liberty in Virginia. The most vociferous opponents of that, by the way, were Yankees from New England, who had state-established churches in 1788. And Charleston, South Carolina, of course, was called the Holy City at one time because of its religious diversity, including a large Jewish population. And we know Baptists and Quakers were beaten and killed in New England. So, I mean, this is Yankees. Again, this is Yankees. It's virtue signaling. It's the worst thing. So that's part of the problem here. And then the other piece, the antidote for self-righteous, Yankee self-righteous delusional disorder, I, I actually list three articles here, and two of them are from conservatives. You see, as I've mentioned on this particular podcast, the problem is not necessarily the left. I mean, but you have right people on the right who are virtue signaling and causing issues as well. In fact, it's worse with them. So the first article I talk about in this piece is authored by Josh Gelentner, I guess is how you say his name. He's writing for the National Review. And he says that Southerners should distance and discard their romance for the Confederacy of the better part of its heritage, namely the thousands, estimated 110,000 of Southerners who resisted secession and fought for the Union. After all, they weren't traitors like their southern brethren were. And 
his family who fought for Confederacy picked the wrong side. So he says, you know what we should do? We should, we should celebrate these Union Southerners, Unionist Southerners. And so I say, you know, why hasn't the South seen the light before? The South should abandon the nearly one million men who wore the grave for 110,000 men who chose the right side. And I'm sure of the thousands who were left destitute by the war, who suffered unimaginable hardships in support of the effort, women and children included, and who lost everything in Appomattox, would welcome such unsolicited advice. And I say apparently so because they spent so much time after the war glorifying their Union brethren. And the thousands of monuments in honor of the Confederacy across the South are a testament to that fact. So, I mean, Southerners knew about this. There was, a, there was actually a piece, I think it was by Bradley T. Johnson, where he talks about the fact that the South wouldn't have lost the war without the South. I mean, he talks about these Southerners who fought for the Union. George Thomas, for example. Abraham Lincoln even was born in Kentucky. You could say there's certainly a Southern part to Abraham Lincoln. It wasn't, if it wasn't for the South, the South wins the war in many ways. The second piece by Brian Butler at the leftist New Republic is pure vitriolic bile. Butler cannot hide his disdain for the South, his people, his heritage, and his culture, which Butler would probably summarize in one word, hate. Right? All this is hate. That's a strange word to use, by the way, because uh, particularly the antebellum South, I mean, you didn't find much hate for anything but Yankees. Certainly they didn't. They, they hated Yankees. But outside of that, I mean, they didn't hate things. Of course, Butler has a simple agenda, rename, remove, or destroy any vestige of the Confederate past, including the 10 United States military installations named for former Confederate soldiers, the myriad totems of the Confederacy and its leaders that pockmarked the South, or any other public place named after the Confederates who committed treason against the United States in support of the war for slavery. Again, again this is 2015, April of 2015. We're talking about renaming Confederate military bases, which is now on the table in the Congress, right? The Republicans in the Congress. The quote-unquote conservatives have decided to do this. I mean, of course they did. The Republican Party has always been the Republican Party. It's never been a pro-South party. The federal government could remove the Confederate Memorial at Arlington, stop spending money on Confederate headstones, and strike any Confederate landmarks on the National Register of Historic Places. Sure, because they're not historic at all. They're just... Mon monuments to hate and treason, right? Now, this is interesting. Butler at this time would spare the Edmund Pettus Bridge, named after a vicious white supremacist who committed treason against the United States, etc., etc., but only because the bridge should bear Pettus's name eternally with the explicit intent of linking the sins of the Confederacy to the sins of Jim Crow. Now, there is a movement today to rename that bridge after John Lewis in Selma, Alabama. I don't know if that will happen, uh, but that, I mean, so here we are, you know, five years later, a little over five years later, and there's already, this is already, they're already changing their tune. Yeah, we should rename that now. The exclamation point making April 9th a national paid holiday labeled New Birth of Freedom, replete with fireworks and grand jubilees designed to announce treason, secession, and anything Southern. But don't we celebrate July 4th as a holiday of, I don't know, secession? I mean, isn't that what that's all about? And of course, the British called it treason. This is strange. So we'd have one holiday saying we're, we're going to celebrate secession and treason and another one that we're going to announce secession and treason. This is where these people just don't get it. Now, I bring up some things in this piece that now the 16th, 1619 Project is saying 
they're echoing this, right? So here I am on the cutting edge five years ago when I said, look, couldn't you say that the American War for Independence was about slavery? After all, there were 13 slaveholding colonies. And the British said that the war, at least two states, Virginia and New York, was all about slavery. So isn't the war about slavery? I mean, this is the funny part of this to me, that they, I mean, they, the neoconservatives now are going ballistic over this. No, 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 you can't say that. You can't say that. Because that's the war they love. But they don't like the, they like the other one because of the outcome. But the, they like the outcome of both, but they love the first one because it puts them in a morally superior position, supposedly. These people, no, 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 they weren't committing treason. It's totally different. The American War for Independence, totally different than the War for Southern Independence. Totally different. They're two different things. And then the third piece by Richard Brookheiser, who I disagree with quite a bit on a lot of things when it comes to history. Now, I mean, he is conservative on a number of issues, but when it comes to history, I think he's, he's terrible on some things. Now, I do recommend a couple of his books because I think he writes well, and I think that on Gouverneur Morris, for example, it's a good book. Uh, but, you know, other than that, um, he, and I recommend his book on John Marshall, too. He's good with the nationalists because he sides with those people. Now, what he says about his, their opponents, awful, uh, but when he sides, now, Governor Morris or Governor Morris is an interesting case because he was a secessionist too. So Burkheiser has to deal with that, which is interesting how he does it. Uh, Burkheiser said the South needed guidance. The South needed guidance when the war was over, and of course Lincoln wouldn't or Lee wouldn't provide it. Lincoln was dead, so the worst presidents of a group of lost cause romantics and bitter partisans let the South run into murder and terrorism, and the South is only redeemed, you know, a hundred years later. So this is the problem with Yankees, and Brookhives is a Yankee. All these people are Yankees. Now, Tomaski was in West Virginia. He doesn't call himself a Southerner. In fact, he, he, he doesn't think at all. He said, when I was growing up, it wasn't a Southern state. Now it is. I put in this piece, you know, there's a reason why Daniel Boone once said he, would, he never wanted to live 100 miles of a damned Yankee. Never wanted to live within 100 miles of one. Daniel Boone, <laughs> the quintessential American in the 19th century who Northerners wrote about and romanticized about. Daniel Boone never wanted to live 100 miles from a damn Yankee. Portland, it makes perfect sense. I mean, to, to the editors of the LA Times, this doesn't make any sense. Why is it all these, why all, all these uh, white Northerners are, you know, why is this becoming the center of, of Black Lives Matter movement? Because it's really about them. It's not really about Black Lives Matter for them. It's not about that at all. It's not about anything but them, you see. We saw that one of the Black Lives Matter leaders unseated a Democrat, longtime Democrat um, congressman in Missouri. Well, I mean, for her, it is about her, right? But for these people in Portland, it's not really about, about Black Lives Matter. It's about them. So this is the thing. I mean, it, it makes sense when you look at what Yankees are across the history of the United States. This is what they do. This is, they've always been the preeminent virtue signalers in the United States. And why uh, they have been the most destructive force. In fact, you can say uh, white leftists have been the most destructive force in human history. Whether it's, I mean, 
What was the French Revolution? What was the Soviet Revolution, the Red Revolution there? I mean, two of the most bloody, nasty revolutions in human history, European leftists. Right? I mean, the French Revolution began it all. You don't, go, you don't have much of what's happened in the 20th century without the French Revolution. It was nasty and bloody. And he, you could even make a case that for some of the leaders of the American War for Independence, it was a leftist revolution as well. I mean, people like Tom Paine. So this all makes sense. You can even look at the wars of Christendom with the, Protest with the Protestant Reformation. I mean, some of the nastiness that came out of that. Was that a, a battle between left and right? I mean, not really, but it was, a, it was a battle over dogma, right? So you get this, and there's never been a more destructive force in human history than European leftists. They are a nasty group of people. And what's interesting, of course, in all of this, uh, in the... Southern Cultural Intellectual History course, I, I, uh, I provide one of the lectures, and the newest course is coming up, not the one that's already out, the newest course. I go through a document from 1801 that made the very case of what we're seeing today in American society, and that's that religion has been replaced with government and political ideology as a religion. And this was said in 1801 this was happening. Here we are in 2020, and it's just even more nasty than it was back then. Our political ideology has made us religious figures, and for those in Portland and those with this Yankee self-righteous delusional disorder, it is a religion to them. It's a secular religion, and because of that, they, they urge conversion, and it's about them, not about what you are, and that's why they want to tell you what to do. All right, it's about busybodies. I mean, these people are busybodies. And I want to wrap this up, actually, from a, from a great book, uh, from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And at the end of the book, the last chapter, it talks about how the four children, of course, became great kings and queens in this new Narnia. And this is by C.S. Lewis, of course. And you know, the book uh, was originally published in... 1950. And it's funny what C.S. Lewis says here at the end, because I think, I mean, busybodies have been around for a long time, and they have always been the antithesis of good government. Busybodies are always the antithesis of good government. Listen to what he says about the four children, the two kings and the two queens. He says, but in the end, all that foul brood was stamped out. He's talking about the white witch. And they, meaning the four children, made good laws and kept the peace and saved good trees from being unnecessarily cut and liberated young dwarves and young satyrs from being sent to school and generally stopped busybodies and interferers and encouraged ordinary people who wanted to live and let live. And they drove back the fierce giants on the north of Narnia when these ventured across the frontier. 
and they entered into friendships and alliances with countries beyond the sea and paid them visits of state and received visits of state from them. And they themselves grew and changed as the years passed over them. But that one line, they generally stopped busybodies and interferers and encouraged ordinary people who wanted to live and let live. And you see, that's ultimately what the major problem in America is today. Nobody wants to live and let live any longer. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show.